My hope is in the Lord, who gave himself for me. Hi, I'm John Hemminghouse, speaking for the Beacon of Hope broadcast and ministry of Calkins Baptist Church. For several months now, we've been walking behind Christ and watching what he's doing as recorded in the Gospel accounts in the Bible. Today, as we follow Jesus once more, we come to an incident in which Christ was threatened by a king by the name of Herod Antipas. This is not the King Herod that tried to kill Christ as a baby, but that man's son. In the immediate context, Jesus was asked a significant question, Lord, are there few who are saved? So it is Christ's response to this important question and his handling of Herod Antipas Antipas threat that form the basis of our study for today. I hope you'll listen. Good morning. This is Pastor Lane Jones, and today we're going to follow Jesus around again as we're trying to take his life in chronological order. And in this particular incident, uh, this is what you, I guess, would call uh, an attempt to bully or intimidate Christ uh, during his public ministry. And it um, it concerns a man by the name of Herod. Now, this is not Herod. Jesus, um, the one that tried to kill Jesus as a, as a boy. This would be his son. His name is Herod Antipas. He is ruler over the Galilee region, which is where Jesus will spend a lot of his early days in, in his youth. Um, up in Nazareth area would be in the Galilee region. A lot of his public ministries up there as well. And then an, uh, an area called Perea, I believe that was on the um, the east side of the Jordan River from where Christ normally would have been at. And that seems to be where Jesus may have been at when, when this incident takes place. And so it's, uh, it's interesting that, that he was threatened, and um, it's easy to uh, cower in fear or to maybe another response when, you're, when one is threatened is to kind of puff yourself up uh, in your pride and try to intimidate the other person and hope if that doesn't work that uh, you're ready to go to battle with them. Uh, so what do you do? What do you do when you're threatened? And so we'll see Christ deal with this situation. And we'll also uh, look at what the context is in front of this situation, which is an in- interesting conversation that uh, we want to talk about too. So before we get started, let's ask God's blessing upon his word. Father, we thank you for this opportunity. Pray you'll give us wisdom as we study your word together. Thank you for each person that's taken the time to listen. We ask that you'd open our eyes, Lord, to our Savior, to how he acted, to um, get a, a little a window into his life. And um, we also pray that we would learn to be like him. Uh, Lord, we know we'll never um, uh, be exactly like him, but we can we can certainly work at at uh, trying to understand and follow his traits. And Lord, also, we know that he calls us to himself to be his disciples and to have eternal life. And so we pray for any who may not have that yet that are listening, that you might work in their lives and open their eyes to the truth of the gospel. So we pray your blessing upon this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I remember um, only getting bullied maybe once in school. I went often to Christian schools, and uh, so I didn't have a lot of really tough kids around who were mean to me. Um, certainly had older kids, and you know a little bit, but not nothing major. The only time I really remember someone trying to really kind of intimidate me was when I was actually my senior year, and I was taking one class down at a local public school, and there was a kid who was, I was taking a science class actually, and there was a kid who, his dad had some had taken a dislike to my father. Uh, we had just moved in the area a little while before then. And so um, he 
I guess took it on himself maybe because his dad didn't like my dad. I don't know what it was. But uh, to kind of come after me some and to try to intimidate me. And it wasn't much. Again, I was only there for one class, so I didn't have to really um, fight the guy or anything like that. I do remember I was working in a grocery store. It was one of my first jobs. And um, he came in that uh, the store one night and was trying to say something uh, to kind of, I don't know, put the fear in me or whatever. And I, I probably, I, I don't remember specifically how I what I said or how I handled it. I just, in my, um, again, this is maybe 40 years ago. I just remember um, talking to him and um, and not, you know, not, not showing fear. I, I didn't, you know, it wasn't that I wasn't, he was a lot bigger than me, probably 60, 70 pounds heavier than I was, but um, he was in a public setting. I mean, I don't think he was going to start anything there. And um, thankfully, I, I hopefully I prayed about it at the time, and God gave me the words to kind of uh, not escalate the situation any, and, and so he kind of moved on. And I really never I remember ever seeing him again. And so I've not had what some of you guys have had um, who are listening, where you've really had somebody going after you consistently that you had to deal with. But Christ is is trying to be intimidated. They're trying to intimidate Christ actually with with King Herod, and this again Herod Antipas. And so this guy has resources. He's got soldiers, etc. And what we want to look at is the first part of verse thirty one of Luke thirteen, which says, "On the very same day, some of the Pharisees came." saying unto him. Now, the very same day, Luke is obviously tying this to something, so that's why I want to back up uh, to verse 22 and see what was going on during that day. And so we'll back up there and we'll get, get the background behind this story. It says, and when he went, and he went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Now, this is Jesus' uh, journey that's going to result in his crucifixion. And he knows that. And so he's headed toward the cross, and he answers an important question that comes up to him at this point. So this evidently is the same day that the, the event with Herod is going to take place. Then one said unto him, Lord, are, are there few who are saved? That's an interesting question, isn't it? Are there few who are saved? And, and so Christ is going to answer this question. And his answer is interesting, and it's also quite disturbing when you consider it. And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow gate, for many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. So the first thing that Jesus says in answer, are there few saved, is that the gate to heaven is narrow. Now that's exactly the opposite of what many religious teachers are teaching today. They're teaching this idea that um, that kind of heaven's like this mountain and there are many different paths up that mountain. It doesn't really matter which path you take as long as you're sincere and a good person. Well, how do you define that, being a good person? The scripture actually tells us that we're all sinners, hopelessly lost. And Jesus is saying here, in contradiction to what a lot of people are saying today, that the way to heaven is narrow. How narrow is it? Well, let me, let me quote to you from Jesus' words in John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus said, and this is talking to his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father except through me. Now he's saying he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to heaven. The Father is, is heaven except through me. That's how narrow the gate is. The gate is is 
Jesus. If you've accepted Christ as your Savior in, in truth, and a lot of people run around today claiming to have accepted Christ as Savior and are not saved. I remember a friend of mine was um, actually involved in a hijacking. He, is, he was driving a truck down into New York City, and there were a group of hijackers, and I believe they were out of Philadelphia, that kind of whacked his truck, and they pull over. When he pulled over, out they spring with guns and grabbed him, threw him in the back of his own truck, and drove the truck away. Now, he was, uh, for several hours, they actually got the wrong truck. They thought it had camera parts, as I believe, and it actually had jello, so they were kind of upset about that. And they had to dump him out somewhere, which they did, somewhere in New York City, and then um, and, and kept moving themselves. But uh, the, it was interesting, because in the hours that he was a captive, and they had him, I believe, blindfolded so he couldn't recognize anybody, he got talking to one of the guys there, and the guy said, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. Now, again, lots of people claim to be Christians. Um, I don't know that there's a Christian robbers group out there that shouldn't be because, uh, again, a lot of people just claim, oh, yeah, I've prayed a prayer, uh, but their, their lives are, are a mess. They're living ungodly lives. Now, do we get to heaven by our good works? No. But genuine faith changes our lives. And so Jesus is saying, the way to heaven is narrow. There's a lot of people that claim to know Christ. It's knowing him in spirit and in truth. It's really having a faith that, that lives. There's a guy I was listening to on the internet. Um, he's not a, I don't know that he's a born-again Christian, but he had something interesting to say about faith. He said that faith is really shown by what you do, not by what you say you believe. And that's a very good point. That is a very good point. Now, I haven't ever put it, I don't think, in exactly that way, but I've definitely tried to teach that concept over the years. And so the, the, the gate to heaven is narrow, Jesus said. And he went on to say that many are going to seek. Let me read to you again. He says, "For I, I, I say to you, many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Now, why is that? Why would they be seeking one day to enter heaven and not be able? Well, let, me, let me give you three scenarios that at least came into my mind as I was considering this passage. Um, one is they decide to repent too late. You know how some people say, uh, uh, well, I'll get saved You know, one of these days. I'll give my heart to Jesus. I kind of want to live for myself right now. I want to do my own thing. Well, as we keep, keep reading, Jesus said this in verse 25, when once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us, and he will answer and say to you, I do not know you where you are from. What's he saying? He's saying some people are going to want to be saved, but it's going to be too late. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says, And as it is appointed to man once to die, and after this the judgment. We've got an appointment with death. We don't know when it is. Um, a, a man that... Um, I used to go to as a doctor. I don't know if he's my age or a little younger. I just found out that he's he's uh, passed away. We don't have a guarantee of tomorrow. It's rather interesting. I um, this story is told in, in the Moody Bible Institute's Today in the World of, of a businessman who is well known for how ruthless he was. And he announced to this back in the 1800s. He announced to Mark Twain, who was of course a famous writer. He said, "Before I die." I mean to take a, make a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. I will climb Mount Sinai and read the Ten Commandments aloud at the top. 
To which uh, Twain, who really was not a Christian, Twain replied, I have a better idea. You could stay in Boston and keep the Ten Commandments. Uh, I think Twain had a good idea, don't you? Uh, here's a, a one of these days. You know, I'm going to get right with God or I'm going to do some great act that's supposed to impress God. One of these days. A lot of people, Jesus said, are going to be the, on the outside looking in when it comes to heaven. They're not going to be in the Lord's presence. It's going to be too late for them. Why? Because they obviously put it off. Let me give you a second scenario, and that is people who, and I pray you're not in this category, who deceive themselves, thinking that familiarity with Christ is is the same as knowing him as your Lord and Savior. Um, I'm, I'm talking to people who go to church, have gone to church maybe all your life, your your lives, and and you've been out there, you've you've been involved. Maybe you taught Sunday school class at one point, or some of you have um, very possibly had offices in a church. And so you would consider yourself, well, you know, if anybody's going to go to heaven, if anybody knows the Lord, I know the Lord, I've read the Bible, maybe my parents read it to me, or they made me memorize verses in Sunday school, or whatever it is. Well, many in Jesus' day thought that by being, just simply being Jewish, that they were, as long as they weren't too bad, children of God. We can do the same thing in our circles. We can think, well, I've been baptized, um, or I'm a member of such and such a church, and um, therefore, I, I, you know, as long as I don't do anything real bad, like you know, commit adultery or murder somebody, I'll be okay. Um, that doesn't that doesn't cut it. Romans three twenty three says, "For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God." The people in the church have fallen short of the glory of God, just like the people outside the church. Matter of fact, sometimes even worse. We can be self deceived. Here's how Jesus went on to say. He said, then will you begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But but he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. Now, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those would be their forefathers, and they would have a very, very strong connection with that. They'd they'd, uh, put a lot of faith in that, the fact that we're descendants of Abraham, the great patriarchs. But Jesus is saying, just because your relatives knew God doesn't mean you know God. And you're self-deceived when you think that just being familiar with me. He said, some of you are going to say, well, we ate with you. We had meals with you. You taught in our streets. I, I stood there on the corner and listened to you. Again, being familiar, but not knowing Christ personally, not repenting themselves. And are you in that category where, yeah, you you know the facts, you've been around the church, but the reality is you don't have a personal relationship with Christ as your Savior. You've never repented of your sins, admitted that you deserve God's hell, that you're not good enough to get to heaven, and that you're in the same boat that everybody else is. Have you ever really come to that realization? story is told of a school teacher who lost her life savings in a business scheme that had been elaborately pla- explained by a swindler. When her investment disappeared and her dream was shattered of making a lot of money, she went to the Better Business Bureau. Well, when, when she told an official, the official says, well, why on earth didn't you come to us first before you got involved in this thing? Didn't you know about the Better Business Bureau? Oh, yes, said the lady sadly. I've always known about you. But I didn't come because I was afraid you'd tell me not to do it. 
isn't that a sad reality that sometimes as humans, that even though we know that we're on the wrong street, we really don't want the t person to tell us the truth. We don't want to be informed. We want to kind of go down and, and have our own little um, uh, self-deceived concept that we're going to be successful. In this case, this lady was thinking she was going to be rich. And the reality is, if, if you think that you're going to get into heaven because of being good, of, of your righteousness, the Bible says that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags in the sight of God. Others may know the truth, may even believe it, but the reality is they're still not saved because they don't want to pay the cost of repenting and, and becoming a disciple of Jesus. Because that's what salvation is. It's not merely praying a prayer. I think a lot of people think that today. It's actually inviting Christ to take over your life and becoming one of his followers. And the cost of being a follower of Jesus hasn't gone down, folks. Um, it's, it's probably not inflated. We don't have to worry about inflation on that. But we certainly can, can say that the cost of Jesus has not gone down. It is still a decision that will result in a lot of people thinking that you're a fool. And sometimes your friends are no longer your friends when you accept Christ. That's just the reality. I'm not, I'm not going to try to um, soft pedal. It's the truth. Uh, it's interesting because there's a famous philosopher of today that I think is right in that very struggle himself. And that is that um, he's indicated that in some sense he believes that Christ is the Savior, that he rose from the dead, but he's terrified of what that means. And I get it. He's, he's weighing that cost. And I've been praying for that guy. Because a lot of his friends, again, are going to forsake him if he starts telling people that he's a born-again Christian and he's not ashamed of Jesus and that Jesus is the answer. I'll tell you what, you can say a lot of things. Uh, but you say that, and I'll tell you, you'll, you'll begin to see a dividing line among your friends and your relatives as well. And a lot of people don't want to pay that cost. And so what Jesus is saying, by the way, a lot of people love their sin too much. That's why Jesus said, depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. The idea is that you love your sin. You've not repented of it. You want to just go on living for yourself. And so you've, you've lost your chance. You've missed the boat. You've chosen to live for yourself and your desires and thrown Christ aside, and now it's too late. That's Now, that's when Jesus is talking about Judgment Day. And then he describes this horrific scene. Listen to verse 28. Remember, this is the words of Christ. There will, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, think of that. Kind of, I think we kind of gloss over that sometimes. Weeping and people's gnashing their teeth. They're in such fear and anguish. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, again, these are relatives that they would consider you know, in their bloodline, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and yourselves thrust out. There will come from the e they will come from the east and the west. Now he's talking about people from other nations of the world, outside of the nation of Israel. They're going to come from the east, from the west, from the north, from the south, and sit down in the kingdom of God. And indeed, there are last who will be first, and there are first who will be last. And what Jesus, I believe, is saying there as well is there's a lot of people that look like they're a big deal. 
And even on the religious scene, they look like, oh boy, this person's so important and they're so famous and so many people are listening to them. And Jesus is saying there's a lot of people that look really good on the outside and they're going to be last. Some of those people may not even be saved. And there are some people that are last that you wouldn't think anything much about them. But they are going to be first. They're going to be the kind of people that God looks at their heart and says, no, that was a genuine follower of me. And here's how they served me over the years. I think of a woman in my dad's church that lived, I don't know how many miles she was from the church. I'd imagine she was at least five miles from the church. And this is an elderly woman. She's in her late 60s or 70s. And she would walk at times to church because she just wanted to be there. And I remember her singing a song. She asked to sing one day in Sunday school. And um, and she sang, There is a green tree far away. And I'll tell you what, I that song has stuck in my mind because I thought, you know, here is a woman that really means what she's singing. You know, she's singing, singing about the cross. And boy, I'll tell you what, she had no idea that that affected me, but it did. I've never forgotten it. There are people that, you know, you'd overlook. You think they're last. They're, they, you know, they're faithful and they're godly. And yeah, you kind of know that. But they're, on the, they're, they're, they're not uh, in the front. They're not, um, um, you know, up leading the singing or, or, or make, you know, preaching the sermon. But boy, God's uh, will, they're doing it. And they're loving the Lord on a daily basis. And Jesus is saying there are people like that that are going to be first in the kingdom. And there's a lot of people that look like they're first and they're going to be in the end of the line. How true that is. And then he, so this is that horrific scene. And then we see that statement on that very day, some Pharisees came. So here comes the threat. What was this threat about? They came saying to him, get out and depart from here for Herod wants to kill you. Now, are these people, these Pharisees, they've, uh, throughout the, the Gospels, really they've been Christ's enemies by and large. There's Nicodemus, who was a, a Pharisee, and he was a man that did come to know Christ. There were other Pharisees that we know, like Jer- uh, Joseph of Arimathea, who will help bury Christ. And there were several that believed in Jesus, but didn't have the courage to stand up for him. Um, John chapter 12 mentions them. But by and large, this group of religious people, and they were very conservative, and um, they were actually pretty popular among the common people of the day. Um, they, they, for the most part, uh, were enemies of Christ. So we have these messengers. They really, that's kind of what you'd have to say. They're coming up to Jesus, and they're saying, you need to get out of here. And they have this advice, uh, you need to leave because Herod is going to try to kill you. King Herod uh, Antipas. Now, um, that's the supposed reason why Jesus is supposed to pack up here and leave. Herod is seeking to kill Christ, and the Pharisees evidently are trying to help him. Now, the question is, is that really true or not? We're really not told it. But I'll just tell you, as I think about the character of the Pharisees and kind of read some others uh, who are commenting on this section... It's very possible that Herod was actually working with the Pharisees or these Jewish leaders who were Christ's enemies to try to get Christ to leave his territory. Herod may have um, 
not intended to kill Jesus, but he wanted to kind of scare Jesus out of the area because he feared any kind of disruption that uh, Jesus might cause. Because quite honestly, Christ was stirring up crowds wherever he went. And um, I don't know how the Romans felt about that in that day, but Herod is a, um, a leader over the, 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 these two sections in, um, in Israel. And so uh, he, evidently he didn't like it. Maybe even the Pharisees themselves came to Herod and, and tried to get him to be afraid that Jesus was coming through his area. So he speaks up and says, you know, you, you need to, you need to, uh, they, they come to him and say, you need to leave because Herod is going to try to kill you. Well, how does Jesus respond to that? Well, it's kind of interesting. His response to Herod's threat really shows the Lord's wisdom and his gracious spirit in his message back to Herod. Listen to what Jesus said. Verse 32, and he said to them, Go tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Beacon of Hope broadcast, a ministry of Calkins Baptist Church. Now, back to the message. Now, what I've always wondered about is why does Jesus call Herod a fox here? Tell, Go tell that fox. Is he trying to insult Herod? I don't think so. We're told in the scripture about being respectful to rulers, um, to pray for rulers, and I don't believe our Lord in any case was was violating that. So, what do you know when you when you or what do you think about when you think of a fox? And among all the animals, there's a lot of um, um, history that really goes behind the idea that a fox is cunning. And so, it seems that Jesus is referring to Herod's cunning here. When he says to Herod, uh, when he says, go tell that fox. And so it seems also that our Lord is then in, I don't know if you'd call it a compliment. It may be. He's saying, I, I, I know you're trying to be cunning here. And that would lean me toward thinking that, in fact, Jesus is talking about the fact that Herod really doesn't want to kill him. He's trying to just kind of shoo him through his territory and get him out of there. Um, and it's also then Jesus next summarizes his next moves. He doesn't at all uh, uh, try to hide things or even go into hiding. He says, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected, or the idea of I'll reach the goal. So in his summary of his next move, what Jesus is saying here is, um, some have said it's a figure of speech, but I think he's saying that in, while he's still in Herod's territory, he still has some more people to deliver from demons, which is a spiritual issues. He's got more spiritual things to help with people. He's got more people to heal. He's going to help with some physical issues. So it's like, um, I, I, I'm not going to just pick up and run, Herod, he sends back. I'm not just going to move out of the territory. So what Jesus doesn't say, he did not put Herod in his place, and tell him, you stay out of business of God's Messiah. Or he did not uh, tell Herod that Jesus of Nazareth is not intimidated by the threats of a mere king, human king. He didn't say anything like that either. He's not responding to this threat with any kind of a threat back. Our Lord also, 
interesting enough, doesn't call for Peter, James, and John and say, hey, boys, we got to head for the hills. We're, you know, we're under the threat of death here, and we better pack our belongings. Sorry, folks, in line, you know, those of you that want to be healed or whatever, can't do it. I've got to run. I'm, I'm under the, the sentence of possible death if Herod can get his hands on me. Instead, of running or, you know, kind of uh, getting up, standing up in pride and saying, you know, just you know, trying to intimidate Herod back, Christ was gracious to this man while not changing his God-given agenda a whit. He doesn't change it at all. He says, now, here's what I'm doing here. I'm, I'm, I'm going to have about three more days that I'm going to be in your territory. And, I'm, and he kind of summarizes his plan. He's, he's not going to change his plans because God's got him on an agenda. He says um, that this is what I've got to do. I've got to, I've got to perform these, these uh, I've got to help these people out spiritually. I've got to help them out physically. But it'll be about three days and I'll be out of, I'll be out of your territory. So he doesn't put Herod in his place. Instead, he gives him kind of a, a summary of his plan so Herod won't be surprised. And he just keeps moving along. It's possible that Christ is saying that... Um, he would be out of, uh, of ter Herod's territory in three days. Certainly, he is letting Herod know he is not a threat. He'll not permanently stay. And how we know that is because he said it's not possible for a, a prophet to perish outside Jerusalem. And he's, 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 um, he's not saying a prophet could never, but the idea it cannot be. He's the idea that that's, I'm headed to Jerusalem, Herod. That's where I'm going, and, I, and I'm going to die there. And so I, I'm not, he's not a threat. Jesus is making sure Herod knows. No, I can't just comply with this whim to pack everything and leave. But I'm not gonna. I'm not going to cause you a problem. I'm moving out of your territory within a short period of time. It looks like three days, and then I'm headed to Jerusalem. That's really the goal. That's where I'm headed, and I'm going to die there. Now again, he mentions his ultimate goal. And really, he's hinting strongly and humbly that when he gets to Jerusalem, he's going to die. And when you think of it, then without being mean or nasty in any way, Jesus is telling Herod that his threat's not going to work. He's just not going to pick up and, um, and leave on a whim. He's just not going to do it. But he's also not a rebel. He's not trying in any way to show Herod up. He's not trying to, um, to um, you know get Herod to back down. He's just saying, well, this is this is my agenda. I'm I've got I've got more people I gotta help here. I can't just pick up and leave. But I am moving out of your territory. Which really shows us this, folks. So interesting about Christ, is it not? There's a right way to do the right thing. You know, a lot of times we can have a good cause that we're going for, but we go about it in a bad way. I I've seen that many times as a parent, and some of you may identify with this. You know, your kid does something wrong. And maybe they've done it now for the 20th time. They know this thing is wrong, and they, you told them not to do it, whatever it is. And, you know, there's a right way to do the right thing. I can, I can rebuke them, but I can do it in a spirit of, of anger and bitterness, and that really may do more harm than good. Although it's the, it's the right thing to correct them. And so there have been many times I've had to come back to my children and just say, look, I'm not sorry for disciplining you or, or, or rebuking you on this, but I didn't do it the right way. And I am sorry for that. I'm sorry for the way that, that you know, I, I, I lost my temper or whatever it was. 
that it goes on. So there's a right way to do the right thing. And Jesus is not submitting to Herod's whim that he leave immediately and all these people that needed help just go by the wayside. He's not doing that. Um, yet he said he was not changing his plans uh, in such a gracious and humble way that I really marvel at this answer. So Christ isn't cowering in fear to the to kind of like a bully situation. At the same time, he's not putting up his dukes, you know, and let's fight it out, Herod, right now. We're, we're not told of how Herod received Jesus' reply. We're not even told that. But we do know this, that whatever violence Herod may have intended should be done to Christ, uh, he didn't do it. We know that. And it's very possible, again, he was just trying to get Jesus to move on. And Christ did move on, but just not um, on Herod's timetable, on God the Father's timetable, because there were people that Jesus still needed to help. This incident reminds me of Proverbs 15 and verse 1 that says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And may I just really talk for a moment to those of you who are married. This is a really, really important principle. And that is you can, you can have an argument and maybe you are right in what you're saying. You know, maybe it's something, who knows? It could be with the kids, could be whatever. And, and what your, your point may be right. But let me ask you, did you say it in the right way? Did you go about it in the right way? Because there is a right way to do the right thing. And I'll just tell you this too. There's a right time to do the right thing. And what Jesus is telling Herod is that time isn't for me to move right immediately. I've got a little more I've got to do here. So there's a right way and a right time to do the right thing. There really is. And Christ is a, such an example of this. And if we had a little more humility in our relationships with each other and were willing to examine our own actions and our hearts and our words when we have a dispute often we can make things we can make things right with each other and we don't have to go on fighting and hang, having bitterness because look even if i'm on the right side of something if i handled it in a way that was disrespectful or or dishonest or handled it in a way that was that was just me then i need to go back i need to make that thing right and you'd be surprised how many times that smooths situations over. So his response to this threat, he responds to this current threat of Herod in a, such a gracious, humble way. It just, it just is a wonderful thing to, to behold. Then I want you to also notice that Jesus goes on and he responds to a future threat, a threat that hasn't really um, materialized yet, although there's been a lot of talk of it. Uh, before he got there and in times that he's been, visited there, that is this future threat in Jerusalem, the place where he is going to be crucified. And so in verse 34 and 35, he addresses that threat. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, and assuredly I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you shall say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Christ clearly loves the city of Jerusalem, and more than the buildings and all of that, he loves her people. And despite how often she rebelled against God and her 
and his servants over the over the centuries. The Lord loved his his capital city of, of, of Israel, the city of Jerusalem. And by the way, God still loves it today. He tells us in Psalm 122 and verse 6, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And I often do that. He says they'll prosper that love you, that love that city. Um, now, that does not mean that, and clearly Christ is indicating this here, it doesn't mean that all is well in the city. Um, it, it, very similar, if you think about it, how you and I might love our capital, Washington, D.C., and I don't know about you, but I've gone there with my children over the over the years, and we've gone and looked at many of the great buildings there. We've been inside the Capitol, listened to one of our senators uh, speak. We've, we've been... Um, had a little tour of the White House. Of course, you don't get to see a whole lot there, but you had a little tour of that. We've been up. My wife and I have been in the Washington Monument. My son, one of my sons now lives right outside of D.C. And um, about maybe, a, I don't know, a year ago or so, he took us uh, down to some see some places we hadn't been. Uh, we've been on the mall. Many of you have been on the mall in Washington where you see all of the, the Smithsonian and the Lincoln Memorial and so many interesting things. And... It does bring a sense of pride in your country and uh, patriotism as you look at many of these monuments and what they represent. But I think we also know um, that Washington, D.C. is also a violent and often a wicked city. And there's a lot of spiritual warfare that goes on there. And there's a lot of political uh, hypocrisy on on both sides of the aisle. I think we all know that, uh, that goes on there. And it's not... Again, that the the buildings or the physical city is the problem, but it's the leaders who rule there that are the problem. And this is nothing new. In in the city of of Jerusalem, in Jesus' day, in the city of Washington, D.C., in our day, and in, in decades and centuries past, in both of these cities, it's the same thing. And that is that God tells us that many times he sets up over nations the basest of men. He just does. And um, honestly, godly and good rulers are rare. And part of that, I, I believe, I can't um, give you a verse of scripture right now on it, but I think part of it is the fact that God often gives us leaders that fit our national morality. And if we're not walking with him, um, often we get rulers that are not not godly. And that's just unfortunate, but it's true. And so... Uh, Jesus is is addressing the fact that he's headed to Jerusalem and he's going to be crucified there. And can you imagine that? You know you're walking into a place that is going to result in your torture and death. And talk about courage that our Lord is manifesting here. Um, And just a will to do his Father's uh, uh, plan, obviously God's plan to save us from our sins. And so I just want to notice uh, this, how he's addressing this future threat. First of all, he mentions the leadership's rejection of God and his servants. It's not that every person in the city of Jerusalem uh, was against Christ. Many of them loved him. But the reality is, is that as is often the case in, in places of government, that the people who are uh, in greatest positions of power many times are not godly. And many times they're uh, really virulently anti-God in his principles. And uh, that's just the way it works. So he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. So over the centuries, the leadership had rejected God and his servants. They had killed many of his servants. They would stoned many of those sent to them by God. 
And Christ, who sent them in centuries past, is mentioning that. Matter of fact, he goes out and he, he says next, his great desire to save the nation. He says, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. So he's saying, I want to save the nation. Now, to me, this brings great encouragement to, to me as an American citizen because God wants to deliver our nation. I There are many... And rightly saying that America deserves judgment for all the different things we've done. And, and, that, and there's truth in that. But there's also truth in the fact that God would rather show mercy than to judge. He would. And clearly Christ is saying that very thing here. He's saying, I want, I want to save this nation. I, I want to gather you like a hand gathers her chicks under her wings and protect you and love you and take care of you. What was the problem? You're not willing the nation had the leadership of the nation, the spiritual. We're talking about the high priest now. Um, we're talking about the Sanhedrin. These leaders of the nation, unlike many of the common people who did love and, and follow Jesus, these leaders were just, they're digging their heels in. They're absolutely not going to follow him. And they're going to try to lead as many people as they could to, to, um, to resist Christ and to reject him. And they were successful at that, unfortunately, for them. So Christ's desire was to save the nation. How often I wanted to, to do this, and you were not willing. The leadership had rejected him. And what was the consequence of that? Verse 35. See, your house is left to you desolate. That idea of desolate. Think of just being wiped out, forsaken. Um, Christ is saying the consequence of rejecting the nation of the nation rejecting him was the nation itself was going to be rejected by God. We're going to be forsaken by God. They would lose God's protection and be desolate and forsaken. And within about a generation of Jesus speaking these words, in 70 AD, the Romans came in and just destroyed the city of Jerusalem, massacred many of the people, and the nation of Israel ceased to exist for. It was almost 1,900 years. It, miraculously, and it is a miracle of God, the nation of Israel was reborn in 1948 with all kinds of circumstances that came behind that. The hand of God clearly was on that. Um, amazing. Uh, but they were forsaken as a nation. God, Jesus said, you've, you've, you know, you've, you've, you've said no, you won't, you won't accept me, and so you're going to be desolate. He also said something else. He said, assuredly, I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So he's saying, consequent number one of rejecting me is you're going to be a forsaken nation. Number two, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to miss your Messiah. You're not going to see me anymore. You're going to miss your Messiah until there is a future blessing coming. And that is, until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You say, when is that going to happen? Well, there's a prophecy in the book of Zechariah. It's the second to last book of the Old Testament. And I'm going to start reading in chapter 12. I'm going to read you just uh, verse 1 to 3 and then verse 9 and 10. And tell you a little bit of what it's about. There's, there's coming a day according to the scriptures as I understand them. And prophecy is not easy to understand. But as I read it, there's coming a day in which there's going to be a one-world government. And 
at, at a point down the road, the, that one world government is basically going to align itself against the tiny nation of Israel and say, we got to get rid of that nation. Now listen to see why I say this. In Zechariah chapter 12, verse 1, it says, The burden of the word of the Lord against Israel, okay, Thus says the Lord, who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, forms the spirit of man within him, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup, a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples when they lay siege against Jerusalem, Judah and Jerusalem. So there's going to be a number of nations around Israel that are going to try to lay siege to it and destroy it. Verse 3, it shall happen in that day I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. Now notice he said all peoples. All who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces, though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. So he's saying the nations of the world are going to say, we got to get rid of this little nation. They're just too much of a bother. They're too much of a problem for the world community. But when Zechariah prophesies, when they come to gather against it, they're going to be unsuccessful. It's going to be a, a stone that they can't lift, basically. They're going to be cut in pieces. Now, how's that going to happen? I'm skipping down to verse 9. It says, it shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. So now God is speaking. He's saying, I'm going to step in. And I'm going to destroy those nations that try to destroy my people, the nation of Israel. And I will pour on the house of David. Now that would be the leadership, David's descendants. And on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. Grace, God's help. Okay, and his, uh, his, his enablement and supplication is the idea of praying. They're going to be praying. They're going to be praying specifically. Now listen, to, I'll, I'll start in the top of verse 10 again. He says, I will pour on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Now isn't that interesting? The prophecy is that when Israel is surrounded by the peoples of the world, they're going to try to destroy her that they're going to find God's enablement, they're going to be able to pray, and they're going to look, and God is speaking on me whom they have pierced. What did we do? To, what did they do to Jesus on the cross? Well, they pierced them. And God says, they're going to look on me whom they pierced. Keep reading. It says this. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. And grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem. Like the mourning, and he mentions some cities that you may not be familiar with. But isn't that interesting? That there's going to come a day when the eyes... And I'll tell you how I think it's going to happen. Again, it's prophecy, so you can... Um, you know, it may or may not be exactly this way. But the nations of the world gather around to destroy the nation of Israel. God gives them the spirit of grace and, and the ability to pray to him, they understand because they've been following the one world community who's led by a, a man we call in the scriptures the Antichrist. They've been following the wrong Christ. They've been following a guy who was very popular across the world community, seemed to be um, in a, a great person who turns on them. And when they finally see through the Antichrist, uh, that's when I believe they're going to see who the real Christ really was. 
that they missed him. And they're going to look on him whom they pierced. And then they're going to mourn for him. And, and, and they're going to really understand. We blew it. We've been following an Antichrist. And we missed the real Christ when he was here. And when they see that, that's when Jesus, I'm coming back now to Luke, says, you're not going to see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Then you're going to welcome me. You're going to welcome me for who I really am. And that is your true Messiah. So what do we conclude from this? Well, we first of all see that Satan often tries to intimidate God's children away from following the Lord. And that's what Herod is trying to do with uh, whether or not he's using the Pharisees to do it. Um, he's trying to get Christ out of his territory. He's trying to intimidate him. And it's not really God's timing for Jesus to leave yet. We also see that improper responses to intimidation would include submitting to evil, which Jesus would have been wrong to just leave the people behind that he was still there to help, or lashing out in pride and self-confidence and saying, who do you think you are, Herod, and all of that that sometimes we do. Instead, we see that Christ's response was gracious and humble while maintaining his God-given priorities. He doesn't, he doesn't change his plans at all. He just is very gracious in how he goes about basically telling Herod, look, I'm, I'm going to be here a few more days, but I'm not going to be a threat to you. I'm not. I'm moving on. Um, I'm headed toward Jerusalem. Number four, we see that Christ loved his nation and desired to save and protect her. And he still loves the nation of Israel. And I'm thankful he loves our nation too. And um, uh, can I tell you, he loves the nations of the world, all of them, and wants to save them. He does. I think about in the Old Testament, because we think today, well, what about a country like China where they they literally gather up the women and they'll and they'll uh, force them to have abortions and and they're rattling their sabers now toward taking uh, the country of Taiwan and and all the wickedness that they're doing and how godless they are and they they persecute people who believe in Christ, yeah, and all that goes on. But you know, um, in the Old Testament, when you've heard of Jonah the prophet. Well, the book of Jonah is all about Jonah being called to go to a city of Nineveh. Nineveh was a rival of the nation of Israel in that day. They were upcoming, and Jonah may very possibly may have known. I don't know. He's a prophet. But one day they did come down south, and they destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel, which was Jonah's kingdom. And that very possibly is why Jonah didn't want to go and warn them so God would forgive them. He wanted them destroyed, but he didn't realize this. God loves the people of the world. He wants to save them. He didn't want to judge them. And he put his servant through the belly of a fish to get him there to tell the people that he wanted to be merciful to them, tell them that he was going to judge them, and they repented, and God could give um, deliverance and mercy to a couple generations still in the wicked city of Nineveh because they were willing to repent. God wants to save people. He wanted to change and save his own nation of Israel here. And um, unfortunately, that wasn't the problem. He loved his nation, desired to save her. God allowed the nation of Israel to reject his son, though. It, it's, not that, it's not that God forces you or I to accept him. You have to make a choice. You have a part in this thing. And Jesus clearly said, I wanted to gather you. You were not willing. The problem is never that God would not be merciful to man who's truly repentant and humbled before him. The problem is we're not willing to repent and humble ourselves before him. We're not willing to forsake our sin and turn to Christ. That's the problem. 
But it's interesting that God's ultimate plan to save many, including the nation of Israel, cannot be thwarted in the end. So Christ's rejection in in the city of Jerusalem that was going to happen a while after this um, brought about his sacrificial death for our sins. And the Bible tells us that God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So in spite of the, uh, despite the fact that Jesus um, will die in Jerusalem, that was God's plan to save us all. All of us who would turn to him by faith. And Christ will be received one day by the nation of Israel in the future. The day is going to come when they're going to say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus responded to both these present and future threats with humility, with strength, with grace, and with love. And in this passage, Jesus also warned of many on Judgment Day who will be surprised to learn that they were never saved. Could you be one of those tragic souls? I pray not. But if so, let me let me give you a verse of scripture that you need to consider. 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 5 says this, Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. Again, it's not merely a set of beliefs. It's not praying a prayer. It's not saying I believe certain things. Jesus Christ needs to be in your life. You need to have a personal relationship with him. And that comes when you are willing to humble yourself before God, repent of your sin, and by faith trust Christ as your Lord and Savior. Thinking you are good enough to get to heaven on your own righteousness will not work. Putting off your decision to repent and become a follower of Christ until it's too late is a tragic mistake. And deceiving yourselves that that your that yourself that your familiarity with the things of God equals knowing God is a tragedy as well. Jesus is willing to save you, but you must allow him to do it. Will you do that? I pray that even today, right now, if you know that you need to be saved, why don't you just why don't you just ask God right now, God, would you, would you forgive me? I, I, I repent of my sin. I turn from my sin. I want you to, to run the shots in my life. I want you to change me. Would you come in and save me because of what Jesus did on the cross? I believe he died for me. I believe he rose from the dead. And I'm asking you now to save me from my sin. The words aren't important. If that's in your heart, God will hear that prayer, my friend, and he'll save you. I pray you're You'll be blessed and that you'll make that decision for Christ. Would you like Jesus to save you from your sins today? If so, why not ask him to do so right now? If you would like some spiritual help like counseling or prayer, you can email us at help at calkinsbaptistchurch.com. Calkins is spelled C-A-L-K-I-N-S. If you'd like to listen to this message again, the link to our podcast is at radiobold.com slash calkinsbaptist. As we leave you today, we pray that this broadcast has been a beacon of hope in your life to point you to the light of the world, Jesus Christ. May God's richest blessings come upon you. Thanks for listening. Light, he free.